I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Brook. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 26, Claudia and the Sad Goodbye. Very sad goodbye. It was really sad, guys. And while this book is super sad and I cried a lot, I'm guessing everyone cried a lot, um, we're definitely happy to welcome a very special guest today, Sue Ding, the director of the amazing documentary, The Claudia Kishi Club. Welcome, Sue. Yay! Welcome. Hi, excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. We One thing we do, Sue, at the beginning of every podcast is that each of us gives a one-sentence summary of the book we've just read from our own perspective. So we'll get right into that because we have so much to talk about and so many questions for you today. So my one-sentence summary is, Anna Martin writes another perfect book about grief that gutted me even though I never actually had a grandparent. <laughs> Why is your one-sentence summary about you? <laughs> because it is. <laughs> today it is. That was my experience of reading this book. Emily? Okay. Mine is, sadness descends on Stony Brook and Claudia spends more time in the hospital. <laughs> it does spend a lot of time in the hospital. More than anyone else, I think. <laughs> oh, far and away. I think this is the third Claudia book in a row she's been in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. No, new, she got the break in New Girl, but it's the thir- it's thir- 75% of the last four po- Claudia yeah. books she's been in the hospital. <laughs> Truly. Poor girl. <laughs> okay. My summary is Mimi dies, Claudia struggles with coping, and Christy sometimes wears mascara. <laughs> What? Yeah. I yeah, did that notice weird. that. Yeah. Esme yeah. was like Esme's like, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, see so what's yours? All right. I went really minimalist on this one, you guys. Mine is just Mimi dies. Is yeah. there anything else we need to know about this book? No. Pretty much. <laughs> Wait, you guys, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. <laughs> I'm Annie Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Sue Ding, a documentary filmmaker. I'm kind of artsy and addicted to dessert. Mm. Oh, good one. We haven't had two Claudias yet. I know. <laughs> I'm very excited. I know. I'm excited to have another Asian person on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I did because I was like, should I put almond-shaped eyes in my descriptor? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <A> little throwback. <laughs> so if you guys want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC-related, you can drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Okay, Sue. So, so we have a lot to talk about. As we know, Mimi dies. Uh, we made that all very clear in a one-sentence summary. But before we, <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, we just want to learn more about you. And like, you know, my first question for you is, when did you first read a Babysitter's Club book? Um, and what are your memories of that? Yeah. I mean, I think it was like second grade. Um it was definitely a scholastic book fair, which was just like, 
Oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> heaven. Um, yes, just heaven. Um, definitely the gateway, the gateway drug for so many young readers. Um, but yeah, and I definitely, I was really into like fantasy stuff at the time, but I just picked up, it was Claudia and the Phantom Phone Calls mm-hmm. and, and just immediately got sucked in mostly because of Claudia, um, but then through her got sucked into this larger world. And like, what was your initial reaction to, you know, reading about another Asian American girl? Yeah, I mean, it was huge because I was I was a voracious reader. I, w- I like had exhausted the elementary school library. And so, and I just so rarely saw characters of color at all. And then of course, the ones that were there were often, you know, very cringy, very, very stereotypical. And even in kind of more sensitive treatments, often seem to be kind of defined by their like oppression, you know, their struggle, um, the fact that they were marginalized. And so as an Asian American kid growing up in a very white um, upstate New York town, you know, that was not empowering for me to read. Um, It like seemed to reinforce like kind of this outsider, outsiderness. And so, yeah, I think Claudia was revelatory for me. I mean, first of all, just because she was like a normal, you know, quote unquote, normal American teenage girl, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd never seen an Asian character, an Asian main character, I think at all. Well, but I definitely never seen an Asian character who is just kind of like going to the mall and like failing Mm -hmm. math tests, you know? And so that was, that was huge in and of itself. And then beyond even, um, beyond that, it was just it was kind of like eerily kind of checking all my boxes because I also loved junk food. I wanted to be an artist. I was really interested in fashion. You know, I also struggled with my parents' expectations because I wanted to do more arty stuff. I mean, of course, now I'm realizing I said I started reading these in second grade and I'm like, what? <laughs> but I guess this is, this is like carried through, you know, mm-hmm. my elementary school experience. We have an ongoing bit about how Esme, all, all the dimensions of Esme's personality were formed when she was eight. So this is, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, in, you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I um, you know, kind of haven't really evolved a lot, I guess. Um, but so, you know, I think I, I connected to her on all those levels and definitely um, kind of on the, the creative side, I was really, I was really interested in art and never saw, you know, Asian, Asian American artists and definitely not Asian American women artists in art class or on museum trips or things like that. So I think that was then like another level of, oh, I've never seen this before, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting to hear you talk about this. We talked about the kind of comparison of how the series treats Claudia as against Jesse in the first Mm -hmm. book where Jesse is kind of introduced. And we're like, there's so far the she seems to be sort of only differentiated by her blackness. And we're like itching to kind of learn or get to the point where Jesse and Mal start to pull apart a bit more, like in ways other than the fact that Mal is white and Jesse is black. But I think that that was maybe a little bit, Anna Martin had already kind of paved this way with the Japanese American character. And then there, there was like, okay, wait, there's a bit of a fumble happening with the introduction of the black character. But, yeah, I did notice in this book, I was laughing because um, when Claudia introduces Jesse and Mal, she's like, Jesse and Mal are best friends. The biggest difference is Mal is white and Jesse's black. And I'm like, is that the biggest difference? Yeah. yeah. It, every single book. Yeah. It's, only, <laughs> yeah. it's the only difference so far. I mean, they're basically described as exactly the same. They, they both love horses. They, they both love to read. Their, their families treat them like babies. They're the oldest in their family. But, you know. Jesse's black and Mel's white. Right. Also, she I, did, 
I did like Jessie because I was a dancer also, and she was like the ballerina and um, just like a an overachiever generally. So I was like, oh, like she seems cool. And then I definitely, I think I didn't necessarily relate to her when I was reading the books, but now I can acknowledge that I have big Christy energy. Yeah, as well. <laughs> this yeah. is a safe place for Christies. You're totally. You're totally I mean, I feel here. like most of the women I know have big Christy yeah. energy, so you know, it's fine. That's funny. Yeah, I'm thinking too now that like if Claudia Buck's the model minority stereotype that the problem with Jesse is that it falls into the like sort of magic, right? Like she's, yeah. Yeah. She's too good. She's too good. Yeah. She does kind of strike me. I was actually thinking um, she kind of reminds me of Jodi from Daria. Because she's also like, you know, straight A student, class body president, right? Or like, mm-hmm. it's been a while since I watched Daria, but you know, yeah. they're both kind of like very perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a way that I think was bucking some stereotypes. So, absolutely. You know. Yeah. So, I'm curious, you said you grew up in upstate New York. Were you, so I grew up in California. So, I was, there were a lot of Asian people here, but grew up in upstate New York. Were you like the only Asian kid in your, in your class or like were there very few in your school? Um, there were, I'm Chinese American. Mm-hmm. Um, it was me. And then there's one Japanese American girl, but she wasn't in my elementary school like class. So yeah, it, it felt very much like it was just me and my family. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's because like when I read about, um, the Claudia books, you know, she, I think they, there's like, they mentioned Rick Chow sometimes is <laughs> someone they eat lunch with and he's, I know, sprinkled throughout the books, you know, like throwing a Rick Chow there. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it is largely Claudia is like the only Asian American family. It seems like in Stony Brook that is in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered like how that how that would feel to be the only Asian kid because I didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um I think my identity with being Asian American or Japanese American is probably very different from some other people's experiences just because I grew up in a much more diverse community. Yeah. I mean, I moved to California like three years ago, um, to Los Angeles three years ago. And before that had always been on the East coast, mostly in New York. Um, and I definitely came here and was like, Oh my God, this is like Asian Disneyland. There are so (laughs) many Asians everywhere. (laughs) Like what? This is amazing. (laughs) You know, even compared to like New York City and, you know, big, you know, mm-hmm. not just this town in upstate New York that I grew up in. And so, yeah, I think that was definitely formative for me growing up in a very white environment. Um, and that's also why I connected to Claudia, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when you stopped reading the Babysitter's Club book? I think I stopped reading them probably by the time... I finished elementary school. I didn't mm-hmm. read them all the way to the end. I never encountered Abby. Um, yeah. We're all, we're all Abby uh, ignorant as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like I aged out of them pretty quickly. Um, and they also just weren't around anymore, I think, by the time I got to middle school. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what um, – I know you've made a lot of other, like, documentaries, but what was kind of the impetus to start? the Claudia Cushy Club documentary and when did you think of the idea? The idea had been kicking around for, I'd been, I'd been thinking about the idea for some time just as this like thing in the back of my head. It's like, oh, this would be a fun thing to do a documentary about. Like I haven't, I haven't seen this, you know, but what really 
made it into an actual idea instead of just like a vague thought in my head. Um, in the early 2010s, I started noticing on like the the burgeoning world of social media, a lot of babysitters club stuff, just like on live journal, on blogger, and then of course, carrying on over to like Instagram. I just like a lot of people posting kind of nostalgic, uh, you know, babysitters club pose, which, which, which babysitter are you quizzes mm-hmm. or like fan art and things like that. Um, and I think it was just like millennials coming of age and suddenly mm-hmm. having this platform to talk about the stuff that had been really important to us as kids. Um, but specifically, I noticed that there are a lot of Asian American women um, and a lot of Asian American creatives talking about Claudia as like a really important early influence or just someone mm-hmm. that they had really connected to, you know, the first time they had connected to a character in that way. Um, and I think, you know, my my experience of Babysitter's Club was pretty uh, solitary. You know, like I read mm-hmm. the books, I enjoyed them, but I wasn't really talking about them with friends and I didn't, and so at this kind of like 2010s, um, seeing this all on on the internet was the first time I'd realized like, oh, like so many people had the same experience as me. Mm-hmm. And so many other Asian Americans were also connecting to this character in this way. And this like this larger, it's like a generation of people that grew up with this character. Um, and so that was kind of the seed of the film, um, kind of realizing about the community and then also specifically thinking about talking about Claudia through the lens of Asian American creatives who grew up with her and are now creating their own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so cool. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> I've watched, watched it like three times. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's like what you said, I think when I read it, it was a very solitary experience. I mean, Esme. Of course. I'm like, where where was okay. I? What are you talking Ooh. about? Well, Shit, I guess I meant every book. Well, it's more that you're not Asian. So I couldn't Okay. <laughs> but you know, like that I, I know. Think, I think that I, you know, like you, I read the books. So I was like, I'm not good at math. I like art. Like I like junk food. You're like, I'm like, yes, <laughs> like you are my person, Claudia Kishi. But I never got to discuss those feelings about it with anyone. So I think it wasn't until I was an adult, like you said, when you started seeing these things on the internet, especially celebrating Claudia, um, that I was like, oh, this was a shared experience. Mm, and totally. I can, we can thank the internet for that. Well, and also <laughs> you you point out in the doc, st- streaming now on Netflix, by the way, everybody, um, that, uh, you know, that Claudia, it's not just that she's an Asian character, but she mm-hmm. is like the coolest character in the series you know she may not be the one that you identify with like I knew that I was not a Claudia growing up I was really good at school I was like there was other things that I was not as artistic um there were things that ruled me out other than the fact that I wasn't Asian but it wasn't like no one would read the books and be like "Ugh, no one wants to be Claudia like everybody wanted to be Claudia like Mm -hmm. she was obviously awesome um and so that feels really revolutionary too I always feel when we're doing, so we've been doing um, sort of our own version of BSC personality things based on actual psychological research that Esme knows, but doing it very unscientifically. And I always feel bad when we give someone 0% Claudia because I'm like, oh, that can't be nice to be on the receiving end of that. Like, <laughs> really? There's like no Everybody Claudia. At least some Claudia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that like, yeah, I felt like even if you didn't, feel like you were a Claudia. She was clearly one of the most aspirational characters. And Mm -hmm. I think the reason that so many people kind of looked up to her or, you know, thought of her in that way um, is because she's so 
beyond like even the creativity, the fashion, the Asian American stuff, I mean, she is so confident and she, you know, she'll just wear like these crazy outfits and she's just really like, if you don't get it, you don't get it. But like, I'm going to wear my (laughs) insane overalls and like blinking earrings or whatever. And I think at the age that people are reading the Babysitter's Club, like no one, everyone is just trying to fit in, right? Everyone's so scared that they're going to do the wrong thing, that they're going to get made fun of. Um, And so, I mean, certainly that was my experience. And and so I think to see this character who's like so just confident in who she Mm -hmm. is and like doesn't care if other people don't get it is just like really um, just like what? (laughs) Yeah. And I think I forget who said it in in your film, but as an an Asian American, you're brought up to kind of like not stand out. Like you're taught to be quiet and not be too loud and just kind of blend in. So for Claudia to like wear all these wild outfits and like, even though her parents probably didn't think that it was, you know, appropriate was something that definitely stuck out to me. Yeah. To see her taking up space in this way was Mm -hmm. definitely not something that I think um, I encountered other Asian characters doing. No, 100%. I can even remember even in high school, like I dressed totally, you know, pretty normal. I mean, flannels and whatever baggy jeans yeah it was was the early 90s it was early 90s i dress like everyone else um but i remember (laughs) very dawn of you i I was not a total individual sorry (laughs) um but i remember seeing the kids at school who did dress cool and like who like are like the punks or like you know these people who like had a little bit more style than me. And I, I actually was like, oh, I wish I could be more like that because I felt like I had it in me, <laughs> but I didn't feel confident enough to like actually express myself that way. As me wore uh, painted overalls that she was <laughs> with rainbows and daisies on it. <laughs> yeah, I was more like Claudia in that way in high school for sure. Yeah, but it was, you know, it was the early 90s. You could do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. There are far fewer fewer rules. We, we, we young Gen Xers had it, had it good in that, in that way (laughs) before everything got tightened up in the early 2000s. The early 2000s were very confusing time for fashion. Truly, (laughs) truly. I mean, I tried to do the Claudia thing in high school. I was definitely like thrifting a lot of stuff, making clothing and like very all over the place. Um, But now I, I let her down every day. I get dressed because I only wear (laughs) basic black items. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Amazing. So should we get into the book now, guys? Let's um, do it. Yeah. Yeah. I so, feel like subconsciously we've all been avoiding it because it's I know. Sad. I know. Totally. It's sad. I, was like, I was exactly going to say that. So I was like, let's we just, just keep, keep talking, talking about Claudia's you. outfits. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first, dude, are there any? Did anything stand out to you in the book? Um, themes or topics you want you want to kind of throw out there first? I guess just the thing for me is that. Um, I hadn't, when I read this book, you know, I would have been in like early elementary school. I had not experienced the loss of anyone close to me. Mm -hmm. I hadn't been to a funeral. So beyond just like the story itself and the emotional resonance of that, it was definitely like a glimpse for me of something that I hadn't experienced. And it was kind of like a, I don't know, like our bodies, ourselves of like funerals, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I was like, oh, like Mm -hmm. this is what happens, right? Right. Um, so that was a big part of my experience with the book. We we mm-hmm. talk about that a lot, um, Sue, about how Anna Martin writes these sort of functioning as like a 
tween girl Mr. Rogers guide kind of of like this is what this is like. And so Mm -hmm. it could be really validating for kids that have experienced it and then also like help prepare you for for kids that hadn't. And I think this is a really great example of that in this book. Mm -hmm. Well, first, like how much did everyone cry in this book? I mean, just constantly from the beginning to the end. (laughs) Yeah. All the tears. I just cried the whole time. I, yeah, and some of my tears are about Mimi, but some of them are also about this, what she did that Sue just highlighted, mm-hmm. the like beautiful way that Anna Martin highlights all the different parts of like the death and dying process and grief for kids to understand. So a lot of mine was sort of meta crying about that, <laughs> about that piece. But yeah, I cried basically the whole time. Yeah. How about you, Anne? Um, I think I cried about... I think three three times. Okay. Whoa. That's pretty high for I know. That's high for Anne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty high for me. Um, I mean, the thing that stuck out most to me about this book was just the way in which, of course, Claudia copes and grieves. But to bring it back to me, it really reminded me of just like my own family dynamics concerning showing emotion um, and talking about your feelings which, you know, my parents are great, but we definitely did not talk about feelings ever. Um, I don't think I've only seen my parents, never seen my dad cry. Never. I've seen my mom cry a couple times at a funeral. Um, but, you know, I was saying in our pre-meet before you got on to about how um, my aunt died last year and at the funeral, Everyone was coming, this is my dad's sister, was coming up to my dad asking him, like, oh, how are you doing? Like, are you doing okay? And he, his response was, like, talking about, like, oh, yeah, my back's been kind of achy lately. Or, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's been kind of hot, but, it's, you know, it's, it's supposed to cool down. Like, talking about these very, like, everyday things and, like, not even, you, you know, he's either in denial or just, like, not even registering. Someone would even want to know about how he's feeling. Um, So I think like, um, I just, I thought a lot about Claudia being in this situation where she was feeling a lot of these big feelings, but like she, like no one was mirroring her or like there was no like example from her parents to be like, oh, it's okay to feel this way. Or I feel like that she was really able to open up to her parents about how she really felt. Right. And well, and that's the role that Mimi played, right? Mimi mm-hmm. was there to help her understand right. her emotions. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone's crying right now. I know. <laughs> that's why we're not talking. It's hard to talk about it. Well, I'm like, it, yeah. I do think it's interesting that when they finally do sort of sit down and have a conversation about their feelings, the catalyst is like Claudia's anger, right? That mm-hmm. she sees Janine in the mm-hmm. room going through Mimi's stuff and she realizes that she's angry and then. Her parents are like, okay, crap, like we got to talk, we got to figure out what's going on here. And then like, she comes to this realization that like Mimi is still with her in that sense, right? That like, even though the person she would go to for emotional support and who was easiest for her to talk to is gone, like she made it possible for her to continue to do that, like with in her absence, which is like, I'm going to, I can't talk about this book. I'm going to cry again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that that was, um. That's a big part of why I thought this book was so wonderful is that she does show Claudia experiencing so many different parts of the grieving process mm-hmm. and highlights, you know, a really important sort of 
I don't know, it's not a trope in psychology because it's true, but like an important thing about grief is that there's no one right way to grieve, right? Like everybody does it differently and everybody has different experiences and people have probably heard about the stages of grief and that's a thing, but people don't actually go through all of them or in that order or anything like that, that the data don't really back that up. But this idea that you go through a lot of different stages and a lot of different emotions and that sometimes it's confusing and sometimes all you want to do is talk about the person and then other times you want to avoid it completely and pretend that they're still there. She had a couple really poignant moments of um, her forgetting that Mimi had died and thinking like, I'm going to go in the kitchen and help Mimi make dinner. And then, oh, I can't do that. And for, for anybody that's lost someone very close to them, that's a very common thing. Um, I had a good a close friend in graduate school die who was a lab partner of mine. And I would often frequently think like, oh, I need to send this paper to Anna. Like, no, Anna doesn't exist anymore. You know, like that's not a thing that I can still do when you're in the rhythm of speaking to and being with someone so frequently. Um, your brain's in that habit of planning your time with them. Um, and so even that, it was like one little line, but I thought it was so beautifully done to highlight all the different things that Claudia has gone through. And even her talking about being really tired and her grades dropping, these sort of like mild depression symptoms that are not depression, that are the grief process, but that, um, you know, she didn't didn't notice um, or didn't understand necessarily were be directly related to Mimi. And I was sort of wondering what you all thought of like, were her parents too preoccupied with their own grief to notice that her grades were dropping or were they being kind and understanding that of course they would drop temporarily because of Claudia grieving? We, we don't really get an answer to that, but I, I sort of assumed it was the latter. And then I realized later, well, that they, they would, you know, it's Mrs. Kishi's mom, like they would also be upset. So I'm not yeah. sure how you all read that. Yeah, I think probably a combination of both. Like they're going through all this themselves, but I think it, I would hope that an adult would recognize that, you know, this kid has just gone through this thing. So mm -hmm. it makes sense that their, their grades are suffering. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it felt very realistic to me that they just, they toggle through so many different expressions of grief. <laughs> Toggles, maybe a weird word choice there. <laughs> but, um, but you know, like they, there's like the babysitters club all sharing happy memories of Mimi. And then like, then the next time they hang out, Claudia's like, I don't want to talk about it, you know? And mm -hmm. then there is like, um, the, the forgetfulness, the tiredness. Um, and I think also what I thought was really nice that they put in there was kind of the resentment and guilt, even before Mimi dies, like when mm -hmm. she's, um, having a lot of difficulties and Claudia is having to take on a lot of caregiving duties all of a sudden, um, you know, that kind of like resentment and then feeling bad about it, like felt very, I was like, wow, like this feels very like, I'm, I'm glad that they're dealing with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not just sort of poor Mimi and then she's gone. Like it really is. It's very challenging, especially with like a very elderly person for them to be going through. And I think it, you know, their experience, while of course medicine has probably changed in the last 30 years, their experience of the doctors not being able to find something specifically wrong is also really common, right? It's like, she's real old, like her body's just not working as well, like it's starting to wear out. Um, and Claudia's sort of faith in the medical enterprise and being angry that they couldn't fix it and that they couldn't extend her life indefinitely 
Um, I think all of that and the cycle of going to the hospital multiple times inside of a couple of weeks, it all rung very true for me of this process. And I, I, I wish that the, being a psychologist, this is where I wish that there was data. Like, I wish we could know, like, kids that read this book and then experienced the death of a grandparent, how it was helpful to them. You know, like, I, I would love to be able to quantify that in some way um, and do, like, a pre-post test or something. Because I just can't imagine it was anything but super helpful. Like, it just seems so validating and so realistic. I do think your question about, like what was going on with the parents is interesting though and kind of links back to Anne's earlier observation that like there maybe there's something about the emotional landscape of like what we're allowed to say and not say that like I wonder whether Claudia's just not noticing her parents grieving or whether they're like like genuinely hiding it from the kids and like how Mm -hmm. you know kind of what's like would Claudia have grown up and looked back at that moment as like oh maybe it wasn't the case that my parents were just giving me a free pass maybe they like she would have the same question you had right reflecting Mm -hmm. later whereas as a 13 year old narrating her own frustration with like why does nobody seem to care that my grades are failing like she Mm -hmm. doesn't she doesn't go to grief in that line of thinking you know what I mean right which would be developmentally appropriate right Mm -hmm. like she's supposed to be a little self-centered um at this age particularly in the middle of a major crisis like the loss of Mimi so I did think her reflections on Marianne's experience were also really interesting right that she Mm -hmm. keeps doing this like Christy mentioned later that she's worried about Marianne being lonely and it occurred to me that like you know like she says says it in a kind of snotty way like maybe Marianne will miss her more than I will but I think there's some genuine kind of like recognition there that um you know like what what Marianne's loss might even be different than hers right even though they're you know Mm -hmm. almost equally as close not not almost but close yeah Mm -hmm. totally yeah because Marianne had so few people in her life yeah I mean back to you know Claudia's parents I this is drawing from my own personal experiences, but I feel like while, you know, my parents or stereotypically Asian families aren't particularly, you know, feely or like emotional, I still think they really love their kids and they do it in ways that aren't so demonstrative. So it's like, you know, my mom, well, you know, not doesn't, our family doesn't hug. She does bring me a lot of sliced fruits when I go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that's her way of showing me that she loves me. So I do think like her parents saw her grades falling and they were like, it's okay. Like we understand what's going on. And that was like, mm-hmm. you know, a way of showing that they love their daughter. Mm-hmm. A gesture. <laughs> a gesture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, as a second generation immigrant, um, I always read Claudia's parents as like very Americanized and not as like typical Asian parents because she does struggle with their expectations. You know, they are concerned about her grades and Mm -hmm. all of that, but they, um, they themselves are second generation or at least her mom is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they've like grown up in America, you know, her mom is a librarian, her dad's an investment banker. Like I always read them as very kind of Americanized Asian American parents. And so Mm -hmm. when my Asian parents were being very, stereotypically strict immigrant tiger parents. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, like Claudia's parents seem so reasonable and like chill, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's interesting to see that, to think about the different layers of that, right? So there's the, there's the, the pressury tiger parent piece, as you said, but then there's also 
I think these more subtle emotional pieces that are maybe things that are that are passed down and and modeled um, that you might not even like describe yourself that way or you might not even think like, oh, I'm more emotionally reserved, but that that's like, you know, they I, I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. and Mrs. Kishi also think of themselves as super Americanized, but still have some of that emotional reticence um, because of how they were raised. So it's mm-hmm. interesting, like what, what layers are there with first, second, third generation, like totally what pieces remain. It makes me think back to, to some other conversations we've had around whether, whether Mimi is being caricaturized at some points, right. To kind of drops these like tidbits of wisdom, but I think we're also seeing a w- way in which she's not a, a complete stereotype of a, of a immigrant, right. She's like, bucking some of the things that some of the expectations we might have of someone in her position, how she might treat her grandchildren, for example, or what the rules might be in the house and who gets to sneak things and that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I also, I was curious what you all thought about the reactions of the other middle schoolers of like Ashley Wyeth and Dorian Wallingford and kind of how kids reacted to Claudia when she goes back to school. That seems strange to me. I don't, I don't remember that being the case when I was a kid, when, when like classmates experienced loss, but I don't know, maybe it's just been too long. I feel like that avoidance didn't ring true, but I don't know. Yeah. It seemed a little over the top to me. Like I I could see kids being really awkward about it Mm -hmm. and some kids like definitely not knowing what to say, but just like, it seemed a little over the top, but then I was like kind of giving it a pass in my head because I was like, in Claudia's perspective, maybe this is what it feels like, even mm-hmm. if the kids aren't like literally running away from her in the hallway. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think they were a little bit like too standoffish with her, Claudia. But I, I mean, admittedly, I feel like I can relate to that, the avoidance mm-hmm. of uncomfortable feelings. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm creating a theme for myself here as I keep on talking. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I remember instances uh, – in my 20s when friends experienced a parental death and me not knowing how to react beyond the Mm kind of obvious, you know, and these were like very close friends of mine. So I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I realized it was because my family uh, has a certain way of dealing with death that I was mimicking, which Mm. is this is their personal time. Don't, you know, don't intrude them or don't intrude on them. Like let them like, this is something that they should deal with, with their family and you shouldn't bother them, Hmm. you know? And basically it's more like send them a card, you know, put some, you know, in Japanese, you know, at funerals, like a lot of times there's a thing called Koden, you send money. So like you send money in this like Japanese envelope and like, that's, that's all you have to do. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I was never uh, taught to like, be more communicative about, you know, about death with, with friends or family. You know, I, I grew up where like, I, I didn't even attend a lot of my family members' funerals because mm. my parents were like, oh, like your uncle just wants to have his like immediate family or just like a very, you know, you, you guys don't, you guys shouldn't come. Mm. So, you know, I, that for me was a very much a learned thing which I don't think it was until like my late 20s until I realized that I kind of needed to change that. Hmm. That's interesting because I think it's the, you know, in mine and Emily's family, I think it's the opposite. Like there's so much death and like I went to so many funerals when I was a kid, but I still don't know what to say to people. 
Like, okay. And I'm a psychologist. Like, I think it's a very common experience mm-hmm. that um, it's hard, to, you know, because people are so different, because there's no one right way to grieve. It's really hard mm-hmm. to know how to effectively support people in times of loss. And so and when you're 13, you know, multiply that times a million. So I actually thought that it was very um, well written because remember, she also has her friends in the BSC. Right. So it's like she's she's thinking through how would I react if Dory's grandma died versus if Christy's grandma died and it mm-hmm. would be different. And I yeah. think that so she shows the range of reactions like the BSC doesn't run away from her, but her other friends that aren't in the inner inner circle do. And I do think that that's very common mm-hmm. um, and working with kids that have very serious issues come up, right? So I, I work with teens um, with a history of suicide attempts too and self-harm and things like that. Their friends don't know what to say, even now, even mm-hmm. though Gen Z is really known for reducing stigma and reaching out about things. And they still often find that they don't know how to react because they're only 13. You know, mm-hmm. these are really huge yeah. issues. So I thought that that was actually right spot on. I didn't think it was exaggerated. Mm-hmm. I guess I also think one of the things that's interesting about the way that grief gets treated in the book is that the timeline of it is kind of unclear. In some moments, it seems like days are passing and some it seems like the action was yesterday or tomorrow or something. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was kind of an accurate, um, you know, portrayal of like what it feels like for time to pass after something like bad has happened. But I think, you know, it's like, I, I think back to the point that I think Sue made about about how Claudia maybe um, was just experiencing avoidance when kids were actually not avoiding her. Yes. Um, And so that maybe like, that's another, that's another reflection of kind of like the, how time moves differently Mm -hmm. afterwards. Right. That like it, maybe it was a day where one kid didn't, you know, one kid avoided her and it feels like weeks of weeks of nobody talking, um, Mm -hmm. talking to me or seeing me or like wanting to interact with me. Yeah. That totally makes sense to me, too. Yeah. My only other pieces were sort of smaller things. Um, I was a little bit, I liked the the guilt and the frustration that you mentioned, Sue, in terms of um, Mimi getting more ill and how that was playing out. But I didn't like that it was sort of the same plot as Claudia Mean Janine, where Claudia blames herself again for, like, getting mad at her. Um, I thought that was a little tired, and Mimi had already really reassured her about that. And I think Claudia is smarter than that. I don't know. Not that I think that's a common thing that people do, but I didn't know that it needed to be demonstrated Mm -hmm. again just 20 books later. Yeah, it's definitely a retread. And if anything, I think it's dealt with probably more substantively in Claudia and Mean Janine. Mm -hmm. Definitely. yeah. What did you guys think about the fact that we don't find out what Claudia is wearing to the funeral? Oh. Didn't even occur to me huh. until just now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because I felt like, okay, on the one hand, I was like, okay, this is like not an appropriate place for Claudia to be wearing like a crazy outfit. But then we do find out that Janine is wearing Mimi's earrings. So I'm like, mm-hmm. why can't we have at least a detail about what Claudia is wearing? Mm-hmm. Because like fashion matters to her. It's how she expresses herself, right? It's part of her art. So, like, I feel, like, a little bit robbed of a little, like, a mini outfit description there. Mm -hmm. um, You know, Sue, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I would love to hear what you think Claudia would wear to Mimi's (laughs) funeral. Because I think that you've you've spent a lot of time in her her head and her soul in in making this documentary and and just thinking about her in your own life. And I think that it is – I think it's a missed opportunity. I'm wondering what you think it would be. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it would be a- appropriate. You know, she wouldn't show up in like a crazy, crazy outfit. Mm-hmm. 
But I feel like similar to Janine wearing Mimi's earrings, you know, Claudia could have been like, oh, and then I found, you know, the a piece of Mimi's traditional kimono or something and like sewed it onto my dress or, Mm -hmm. you know, I took one of her necklaces and like wore it as a belt or so, you know, like some like repurposing of something that's important to Mimi or something that Mimi gave her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I'm so Uh glad I asked you that question. Those Both of those were great. (laughs) I know. I got, I had a little like punch in the gut feeling when you said like a piece of kimono sewed into her dress. I was like, oh, missed opportunity, Anna Merton. I know. Maybe we need to read it as Claudia is so deep in her grief at that point that she can't even access Mm -hmm. her like creative self. That's what I was thinking too, because by the time she gets to the collage at the end, right, she's still worried about people seeing it as an actual tribute or reflection of kind of who Mimi was and how much she loved Mimi. And imagine like that pressure I, you know, 10 times over, I can imagine on the day of the funeral, like deciding, like if I have to wear something that reflects how I feel about her, but I haven't process that and like Mm -hmm. I don't want to to I don't want someone to mistake you know my feelings for her my grief my sadness and yeah I want I think I think you're right that it it was definitely a missed opportunity but I it's probably how we should read it she was too sad to even tell us yeah she was too sad to even make origami paper crane earrings yeah (laughs) (laughs) the the true depths of her sadness (laughs) oh it's so true oh gosh poor Claudia I know. I really hope that I don't know. I don't have a bunch of memories of where things go for Claude in the next few Claude books, but I'm like, enough with the tragedy already. Like, can we not have you go to the hospital for at least another 50 books, please? Because this is getting. I'd like to get back to some flirting for Claudia. Yes. Yes. Some like mooning and poem, love poems, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. We started off strong with the Trevor Sanborn thing and it's just been sadness ever since. Yeah. (laughs) Broken legs and death. Yeah. Yeah. Strokes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to boys and mysteries. Yeah. Totally. Oh my gosh. Um, the, the one last thing that I did really like is that I, I loved that they gave her like a good, clean goodbye with Mimi. Um, And this is like, now I'm tearing up, partly because of your kimono comment, Sue. But um, (laughs) I, um, you know, the fact that she had that last phone conversation with her um, and Mimi actually said goodbye, I think it would have been a lot harder to not have that. But I also, I was really realistic that there wasn't like a big death scene that Mimi passed away in the hospital and she didn't get like an in-person goodbye, which I think could have been traumatic and harder for Claudia. I just thought those were really good literary choices and, mm-hmm. and probably what happens for a lot of teens and, and kids that they're not there mm-hmm. at the moment, but hopefully if they're lucky, they get some kind of sum up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it made me think that Anna Martin pulled a lot from her own personal experiences because she talks mm-hmm. about it. So it seems like a very personal book and it's, you know, I checked to see who the book was dedicated to, and it, it could possibly be her grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. It says it's dedicated. This book is for Margaret Martin Vinsel with love. So mm. it's not her mom because I looked it up, but it could be her grandmother, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's talked about how she really connects to the relationship that Claudia mm-hmm. has with Mimi, that that's like a, a one of her favorite things to write, I think. Did you get to talk mm-hmm. to Anna Martin for the making of the documentary? Yeah. What was that like? (laughs) It was wild. I mean, it was so exciting as a fan um, to talk to her about, um, you know, about the Babysitter's Club, about Claudia, 
about the inspiration for that character and how she was received. So it was really exciting. Um, she was she was lovely. We have so many weird questions we want to ask her if we ever get to I know, right? Her. Yeah. Our biggest one is who are the Pikes based off of? They have to be based off a real family because they make no sense otherwise. <laughs> Oh my god, who's the goth one that likes poetry? I like her. Vanessa. 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 Yeah. She's my favorite pike. Yeah. <laughs> Vanessa's great. <laughs> uh, that's that's a very reasonable opinion. I think that's fair. <laughs> funny. Um, Emily, I feel like there's probably not like one big feminist sociopolitical theme in this book, but maybe you can do what Anne usually does with like random pop culture bits and bring us out of our like death depression haze and great yes fun things to talk about there's a lot of super fun casual sexism sprinkled about right yeah (laughs) Um, love that yeah okay so there's also an interesting thread in this book where um no one's calling the babysitters club during this grieving period because they don't want to disrupt mm-hmm. the quiches. And so Claudia's like always wondering who's babysitting the kids. And it turns out it's like weird old women who smell bad are like taking over the jobs when the cool young babysitters are unavailable. <laughs> and like the babysitters hate them. And Claudia's like, here's some tips for how to ditch your babysitter when you don't like them. And then like <laughs> a bunch of weird discourse around these, who these, whoever these weird old ladies are that are t- picking up the slack when the BSC is out of business. Um, so that was fun reminded me of earlier conversations we've had about sort of mrs porter and their fear of the old woman who lives alone in her house a single witch and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah that's a thread right because doesn't doesn't someone themselves have a weird old babysitter at one point and it's like a sticking point Mm. oh but then they turn out to be cool did marianne have a babysitter i don't know I don't know. I just feel like there's been, I'm clearly mixing yeah. my, mixing my plots here, but I definitely think there's other mentions of like not cool babysitters yeah. that yeah. are all like old women that like don't have kid kits and like have a weird smell. <laughs> yeah. You go hide from them in your room and then play by yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Um, there's also another bad mom mm, mm-hmm. in this book. We've been sort of wondering about the plausibility of the these this continued plot point where like the babysitters have to scold a parent on like something they're not doing well and this is the first time we see claudia doing that um and and this one i found to be less believable than some of the other ones we've encountered i i found it i found their reaction less plausible right that like suddenly so does somebody want to give a quick uh, background for what this plot point is. So this is Corey Addison, who's a relatively new charge. She is coming to the Saturday art class that Claudia and Marianne are holding. Well, Claudia creates Claudia's- this art class because yeah. her mom's like, I want to pay someone to teach my kid art so I can have some free time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It comes from Corey's, Corey's mom's idea, but then they also invite like the Perkins girls and um, Matt Braddock and Jamie Newton and... I guess I don't have to list all the kids that are at the art class. But you just like <laughs> to show up. <laughs> it's a really important life skill I have to know the first and last names of all the sitting charges in Stony Brook. So any chance I have. Um, so that's the that's the babysitting B plot. This whole book is this art class, and Corey is frequently dropped off very early and always picked up last, and um, just seems kind of neglected by her parents, and also like mentions frequently like I want to please my mom I you know I love her but then like decides last minute to give her art projects to Marianne or to Claudia instead of to her mom because her mom doesn't like show up 
so Claudia at some point sort of gives gives her mom the business and is like, look, haven't you ever wondered why your kid doesn't bring any art projects home? And the mom's like, uh, yes, of course. I just wondered that this morning. Like, no, I didn't wonder that. <laughs> and Claudia's like, you spend time with your kid, basically. And then the mom's like, yes, you're correct. And then suddenly her behavior is completely changed and the kid's like happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I felt like Corey was written well and her interactions with Claudia were like, sweet but yeah I, I thought it was very funny that like her parents were just like we just want to go to the theater we don't care about our children you know yeah. <laughs> they were very like you know kind of cartoonish and then yeah of course the like quick turnaround yeah. of being like you've changed of course I want to be there for my children like yeah. you've changed everything whoops yeah. I never saw it before <laughs> yeah. and it was also a lot less plausible plausible to me than like um Mallory with the Arnold twins mom or Dawn with uh, the Barretts. Barretts. See, look at you um, with the Barretts because I think the relationship isn't there, right? Like Mrs. Mm-hmm. Addison has only been like a person waving from a car. Like Claudia hasn't spent any time interacting with her. Not that Mallory was like going shopping with Linda Arnold, but I feel like there was a little bit more there and she like facilitates the twins talking to their mom themselves and Dawn like, facilitates buddy and and it it just felt a little it was there for the symbolism right it was there for like her to show the strength that Mimi gave her and that she still has even when Mimi's not there but it wasn't really about Mrs. Addison and Corey are we surprised by like how many sort of neglectful moms there are in Stony Brook (laughs) I mean honestly as a child psychologist no (laughs) like (laughs) not even a little bit it seems like the proportion should be higher yeah yeah I also, I think it's funny that uh, when Claudia talks to her, they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to drop them off with another babysitter to go see this like ice skating show. And then we're going to go back out to the bars or whatever. <laughs> like what? <laughs> go to the show. I know. Yeah. They're like babysitter junkies. Can't yeah. stop hiring babysitters. Yeah. Um, and then of course we have more Logan being a sort of, um, Good old Southern good old boy. Oh, talk of boys. I must leave. We have a theory. We have a theory that Logan is gaslighting Marianne. <laughs> so this is just a, a, another little tidbit to go in the Logan. Maybe Logan sucks category. Oh, wait, Sue, do you have a favorite uh, boy in the BSC universe? I don't know. I'm really sad that Tre- uh, Trevor Sanborn never worked out. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite boy. I'm really into Bart Taylor. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's, I, he's great. I have a theory that he's hot also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess I like, I mean, I like the funny ones. Um, Alan Gray mm-hmm. and who's the other one? Pete Black. Um, yeah, Pete Black. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I have a favorite. But it's not Logan. Not Logan. Okay, good. Yeah. Definitely not with him. Just like, oh, you can't talk about bras in front of him. You can't talk about other boys in front of him. Like, what can you talk about in front of him? There are so many yeah. rules when Logan's around. Yeah. And, and he's just he's just waiting for someone better to come along, remember? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, was that in? That was in uh, oh, Marianne. Marianne's and, Bad Luck Mystery. Yeah. He's like, I like Marianne enough for now until someone better comes along. <laughs> Anne's been really hurt by this comment yeah. with Logan's. Oh my God. It's rude, <laughs> frankly. The, the thing about him, like leaving the room this time, I felt even much less plausible to me than the other times when he leaves the room. Like I have never met a person. I was going to say 
a straight teenage boy, but I'll just like, who's not interested in like gossip about other people's romantic stuff. Like, oh, yeah. why would he be like, whoa, no, never mind. Like, who's not interested in that? How is that not interesting inherently? That's a good point. Oh, Logan. When do we learn like more about him? He has his own books. I've never read them, but he has a couple like him, his POV books. Yeah, there's like Logan Story and Logan Bruno yeah. Boy Babysitter. They don't come oh, out for a while yet. Yeah. I think we're going to skip I, those. <laughs> yeah the only other little thing is there's a good um christy the capitalist moment at the beginning when uh the the idea of the art class arises and christy's like you know what we should do this because it's going to be good for business <laughs> like very very no nonsense we gotta I, I, the way she talks about it is funny it's like oh it'll be good for it's almost like the way you talk about some of your work sometimes, Anne, it'll be like good for the brand, like yeah, <laughs> to, to diversify our services. It's like okay, Christy, like we gotta scale, we yeah. gotta scale the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So aside from like all the all the sad stuff, that was kind of those are the fun little tidbits I I drew out of that. Do we get any candy in this book? Uh, yeah. Hang on. Okay, we got double stuff Oreos and 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 Cheetos again. Mm. She's on a, okay. she's on a Cheetos kick. Yeah. Not a ton of tallies, as you might imagine, because she's mostly describing the death of Mimi and her mourning process. So Christy's still bossy three times. So that's (laughs) definitely the leading descriptor of all the babysitters. She does refer to her own eyes as almond shaped. Yeah, I noticed that the first time that happens where it's not another character calling her exotic or saying that her eyes are almond shaped. So that was sort of startling to me. Marianne shy and Dawn equals health food. But that's pretty much it. Let me ask you a question. You know, they always talk about Claudia's perfect skin, and that really bothers me because it's like all Asian people have porcelain skin that we rub nightingale droppings on. It's like that. No, (laughs) that's not what we do. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely part of the kind of exotification of her looks, but also it's like sending just like unrealistic or like unhealthy expectations to teenage girls that you can just eat like Oreos and Cheetos all day and have perfect skin. And she also, I think says in either, I don't know if this book or other ones that she's like, I never gain any weight or anything either. Oh, I feel like that she says that, right. Or like that she's like, or that, I mean, we don't, there's no storyline where it's like Claudia now also has diabetes. Right. Yeah. So I think it's it's kind of the exotification and also um, right, just like you know, these are like young young kids reading these books, and you know they all ha- are like about to go through puberty and have like terrible acne. So what a terrible, um, unrealistic expectation of that for them. We've decided that Claudia has already had her period, mm-hmm. but yeah. some of the other girls have not yet. It scans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, our favorite lines. Okay, mine is on page ninety nine. It's Jamie Newton replying to a question about what color he's going to paint his puppet. And he says, green, what else? <laughs> you like some guff from a from a sitting charge. Yeah. Okay. Especially because Jamie's so sweet. And that's such a, that's such a like bitchy line. I love it. <laughs> Mine was advances in trends in computerized biopsychiatry because it's such a nonsense <laughs> sentence. Oh, the name of Claudia Janine's class? What Janine is studying. Yeah. So that was mine. Both of my lines are also Jamie Newton lines. He was very, really I feel like I feel like he was very sassy in this book. Mm-hmm. So first, he can't. He keeps on confusing Marilyn and Carolyn. Mm-hmm. So he just causes he calls both of them very Lynn. <laughs> That's good, which I think is cute. Yeah. Um, and he also grades um, Gabby's like drawing, and he says, "You get a J plus." Oh yeah, that's so good. 
<laughs> that was cute. Yeah. Did you have any favorite lines, Sue? I loved um, Mimi's when Mimi's getting like a blood transfusion or something in the hospital. And she's like, "Vampire." I was like, "Yes, yes. Mimi." <laughs> oh wait, actually, that's good. That should be the title. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. Mimi's yes. excitement about that. Oh, we also forgot to mention where Mimi, where they're in the nursery at the first time in the hospital, and Mimi says, "I see Asian baby," and she's all excited, <laughs> which I feel like is like how Anne's mom was my entire life. And and we there's also a great picture of Anne as a baby with the hair straight up, like says about <laughs> Mimi. So we got to try to find that for the so Instagram. funny. But I think vampire exclamation point should definitely be our. So it's just title. like it's going to read Claudia and the sad goodbye vampire <laughs> vampire. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. It is what it is. Do we want to do pizza toast? Yeah. Or is there is there anything else? Sue, Sue, thank you so much for being on the show. This is so fun. Of course. This was awesome. Awesome to talk with you. Is there anything else coming up that you want to plug other than everyone should watch the documentary on Netflix? No. I mean, I am... I finished the movie. I'm taking a break. Um, nice. You can see it on Netflix. Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I rem- I'm most active on Instagram um, at Sue Dujour, S-U-E-D-U-J-O-U-R. Fantastic. Nice handle. So I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and goes, ooh. ooh. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get a quick pizza toast in if we can. What, what should we toast to? I mean, I mean, I feel like we have to toast to Mimi. Toast to right? Mimi. Okay. Toast. Let's, Post to Mimi. Let's do it. The best vampire we know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. A pizza toast to Mimi. To Mimi. To Mimi. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. <laughs>